My name is Andrew Kays, and I'm the pastor at Emmanuel Evangelical Lutheran Church of Paynes Point. That's in rural Oregon, Illinois. You're about to hear me preach. Now, this episode was recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, during which time public worship has been disrupted. We don't have it every Sunday. Therefore, all sermons have been recorded ahead of time to make them available online. Unless otherwise noted, all scripture is NRSV, used under the gratis policy of the copyright holder, the National Council of Churches. Our first reading for this morning comes from the sixth chapter of Romans, where Paul writes, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, We will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Here ends the reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 24th chapter. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again? Then they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But... Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. Then he went home, amazed at what had happened. This is the gospel of our Lord. Grace and peace to you, sisters and brothers in Christ. He is risen! You're supposed to say, He is risen indeed. Okay, well, if you're saying it, I can't hear you. (laughs) In seriousness, though, today is a little different like that because even though we have 50 or so little Easter's throughout the year, this is the Easter, the big one, the, the day to proclaim the resurrection, to announce again and again as loudly as ever that Jesus has risen. 
It's a day central to our faith, one through which every thread that comprises the fabric of that faith, not just our faith, but our being, our church, our traditions, all those threads come together. And this morning, we'll be pulling in on a lot of those threads which we've looked at over the past few months or so here at Emmanuel. And to start, let's lift up two. Two that I've been mindful of thus far this church year that I've on occasion pointed them out to you, but now I think for the first time we'll make them a little bit more explicit. So first, we have a lot of stories in our faith tradition that feel awfully familiar, like we know them. And yet when we go back and read them or hear them in worship, it's astonishing how often we forgot a detail or mixed up the order of events or put something from our cultural imagination back into the story that wasn't there in the text. Maybe that happens on Easter too, but you'd be forgiven for thinking the details sounded a little bit off there because the four Gospels record the details a little bit differently, especially with who they decide to name explicitly was there and how quickly the events took place. So Luke names a lot of the women, but there's only one disciple at the tomb. He also gives us the sequence of events rather quickly. Now, arguably, that's because the way he's telling the story, he wants the next event to be held up right next to the first, to read one and then the other. So in church on Sunday, every year, we have the option to read John's account uh, of Easter and here at Emmanuel, we often do at the sunrise service. And every year we get John's next story on the following Sunday. That's the one with Doubting Thomas. But Luke's next story, The Road to Emmaus, is not read during the year of Luke on a Sunday morning. So let me remind you that right after this, right after Mary and the other women find out that Jesus has been raised from the dead, and then Peter too, Luke takes us to a scene later on in Elsewhere. Two unnamed disciples are on their way home with their heads hung low. They are utterly devastated about what had taken place. They had hoped that Jesus would be the one to free Jerusalem, to redeem the people, but their hopes were dashed. And the stranger who meets them along the way must be the only stranger in all of Judea if he hasn't heard what took place. That's how big, public, and well-known Jesus' entry, trial, and execution were, and how devastating it was for his followers. The stranger then opens their eyes to the scriptures. He shows how Jesus was prophesied throughout the centuries. And finally, upon breaking the bread, their eyes are opened fully, and they see that the stranger was Christ, resurrected, there in the flesh, walking beside them along the way. Jesus met them on their way while they were full of disappointment, revealed the truth about who he was and what had happened. And just by virtue of having heard the gospel as such, their spirits are lifted. Now, Luke, with his emphasis on the beginning of this community based around Christ, how the church is one major fruit of the gospel, Luke is quick to remind us how devastating the news of Jesus' crucifixion was. Without the resurrection, there would be no church. This community would dissolve. 
Okay, now a second thread that I brought up a little bit a few times this church year is that the gospel can be proclaimed in relatively few words. And we find examples of that throughout the New Testament, whether it's what Luther called the gospel in miniature, John 3.16, or the Christ hymn we just had from Philippians, or here what Luther called the purest gospel. It's also nicknamed the gospel according to Paul, the book of Romans, which we just read from. Christ rose so that we might rise. Jesus experienced resurrection so that we might have a resurrection like his. God working in us through the Holy Spirit means we die to sin and rise to Christ. Now, we are often quick, too quick, to move the gospel somewhere in the hereafter. Things here stink, right? But at least we all go to heaven when we die as if that's all there was to it. But Paul echoes Jesus in reminding us that the gospel is for here and now, too. It's for today. Even the resurrection is here and now, too. So for those disciples on their way to Emmaus, their heads hung low, but those heads were raised up upon encountering Christ and hearing the gospel of their salvation. That was for them... The resurrection of Christ, a pivotal world-altering event, was turned into a little resurrection in their lives because it restored their spirits, restored their confidence and their community. Which is great, but I'm afraid maybe we rushed off to Emmaus a little bit too quickly. You know, just to make this point as to exactly why Luke does what he does by having Peter there immediately reacting to the news. But... We need to give Peter his due. So let's swing back around to make sure we give Easter morning its due. On this Easter morning, we should probably give Peter his due too. So let's swing back even farther. On Friday night, we looked at where we might have found ourselves had we been there at Jesus's passion from his arrest through his crucifixion. We arguably could take this all the way out to his burial. And throughout the whole event, we saw well, a variety of responses, and a few of them were good and genuine, but many of them not so much. In light of the danger, it's only natural that people, including us, would lash out or retreat or stay silent, maybe even worse. Peter was our stand-in for some of those possibilities, and one of the most important leaders in the early church, Peter, started his career as a bumbling, doubting, fearful fool. So here on Sunday morning, we start with a little bit of the same, maybe. The women are in mourning, and they go on to carry out the customary rituals that come along with death and grieving in their culture. They find this empty tomb, but then there's some unworldly inhabitants. Their clothes are dazzling, which reminds us, though the language isn't quite as strong, it reminds us about what Luke told us about Jesus' transfiguration. Remember, his clothes dazzled there, too. Those heavenly sort of clothing, heavenly sort of clothes, indicate that these are angels of sorts who proclaim Jesus has risen. And then Mary Magdalene, in turn, proclaims the same. She becomes the first apostle in the sense that she's the first to proclaim the resurrection. And they go and tell the disciples, and the disciples, of course, soon are to be apostles too. That's the order of events here. They don't quite get it, though. When the disciples first hear hear it, they don't quite get it. It's translated as idle tale in the NRSV here, what we just read from, but it could have been translated as silliness, gibberish, nonsense. 
They hear this nonsense, and Peter reacts. Okay, time for some Greek. You remember from grammar school that conjunctions connect independent clauses in a sentence. Conjunctions include and, or, but, that, because, then, when, as, and so on. But in Greek, that's the original language of the New Testament, we have a different set of conjunctions. You might find chi, that's usually translated and or then. You might find ala, which is usually but. However, day is an option. And it rides this ambiguous line between and and but in a way that we just don't really have in English. So translators usually have to pick one or the other. The disciples heard all this nonsense day and or but Peter got up. Ambiguity in the text is often there as to open up the text, to let more of the hearers or readers into it. If it's, P if it's and, they heard the nonsense, and Peter therefore didn't believe the women and set out to check their story, perhaps set out to prove them wrong. But if it's translated, but, that implies Peter's the only one who believed them then maybe he's heading out in excitement. He wants to experience what they just experienced, see these angels. So there's ambiguity there. Is Peter believing or not believing? Either way, he's reacting. And more than most any other day of the year, Easter is like that in our sanctuaries. Some that gather on Easter morning, they hear the gospel, they believe it so fervently, they want to experience it, see it for themselves, and share the good news. But some people in church on Easter morning think it's a bunch of nonsense, and best case scenario, it just isn't really for them. Yet someone in their life pressured them to, at least once or twice a year, come check it out for themselves. Maybe there's something that could change their minds if they see it for themselves. Well, one more Greek lesson. This will take a little bit more. Pulling in on one last thread. Remember when our friend Lazarus was raised from the dead just a few weeks ago? I told you how there's a Greek word for resurrection. It's anastasis. That is nearly always used in the New Testament to refer to the end times, as in the event at which all people are raised from the dead and then judged. There is technically one exception, but otherwise, this word is always used that way in the New Testament with a theological spin. And there's another word, anastemi, which is very closely related, which could be used pretty much any way we might use raise or raise up in English. It's lifting up a cross or lifting up a snake. It's raising up children. It's kings rising up to power. It's rising out of bed. It's rising up from the grave. In other words, the theological charge isn't always there. Now, in English, when it comes to the dead, we might say Lazarus was resuscitated and therefore will die again. But Jesus experienced resurrection and will not die again, like Paul reminded us. But in Greek, the difference is much more subtle. Anna means again, stasis means stand. One is a noun formed out of those two parts, and the other is a verb formed out of the same parts, and they most literally mean to stand back up, but of course we have to note the context, when and how they are used, to see the differences, what the author meant. A fun little side note, if you recognize those root words, um, 
this is also how we get anesthesia in English, as well as the name Anastasia. So that familiar story you've heard a thousand times about Easter morning and the fact that the gospel can sometimes be told in just a few verses, perhaps just a few words, the ambiguity and subtlety of how some Greek words were used, and then the fact that Luke emphasizes how disparaging the whole event had been. All of that is caked in if you're hearing this in the first century. If you're in the town square hearing the gospel of Luke, the gospel according to Luke proclaimed in your town square. The angels tell the women, Jesus is not there, he has been raised. The triune God raised the incarnate Christ, the Son of God in the flesh from the dead. And the word there as is anastemi. The women tell the disciples. The disciples think it's nonsense and or but. Then Peter gets up. Peter hears the gospel, whether he believes it or not. He hears that Christ is risen from the dead, and he himself gets up. Gets up, there in the Greek, is also anastemi. The use of the word with some theological weight, Jesus rose as he said he would, followed by Peter moving from a state of discouragement and shame to something better just by having heard the gospel, Peter rose too. It's the same word used in both places, and it's not a coincidence. Christ's rising from the dead is a foretaste, a first installment, the firstborn of the dead, the firstborn of the resurrection, that end times event which will affect all of us. In the here and now, we see evidence of these down payments of our inheritance. There are little resurrections all around us. There are resuscitations every day. There are spirits, heads, and lives lifted up all the time. Sure, as Paul won't let us forget, a, rel a relationship with God through Christ isn't always easy, it means dying to sin. It means repenting, getting your lives in order. That sounds heavy because it is. Yet it also means finding a resurrection like his and experiencing countless little resurrections along the way, rising to Christ every day. For those who believe this good news of Jesus Christ, it's not just about whether we believe the historical event of Jesus rising. It's not just about whether we believe in a coming resurrection or even heaven and eternal life and all the rest. It's also about today, here and now. God meets us through strangers, through angels, through ancient words, and through what sometimes sounds like nonsense. God lifts us up out of the ordinary so that life is not just one mundane, meaningless day after another. God meets us in our despair, our loneliness, our depression, our anxiety, addiction, isolation, rejection, and regret. God does not just reside among glorious acclamations or in some far-off future. God is there in the cold, dark gardens dingy tombs, the long, sorrowful walks home after the worst day of your life. This is not just that 2,000 years ago someone famous said he'd die and then get up again and then did it. As crucial as that is, as to confirm Jesus' authority on matters of creation and judgment, this is about how Christ is alive now 
and implores you to meet him along the way. Meet him in others. Meet him in the breaking of the bread, in acts of worship, in the words of scripture, wherever he is to be found. Meet him there today, tomorrow, on your best day, on your worst day. If meeting him like that will be for you a little resurrection, let him raise you up to see that you matter, that you have purpose, that you are loved, that you are forgiven, that you are not alone. The depths of despair are no place for one such as you. Rise up and see who you really are, whom Christ has created you to be, whom Christ died and raised to save. You are God's beloved today, forever, and always. Rise up, child of God. Amen. Thanks for listening. I pray God spoke to you in some way. A quick note at the end here, which you can skip if you've heard it before. The audio of my sermons does not always include proper citations. While I do some self-study and lean on my seminary education, I also lean on my colleagues with whom we have a regular text study. I also use Luther Seminary's Working Preacher website and their podcast, Sermon Brainwave. Some credit is due to at least one of those sources. Wherever you are, whenever you hear this, please be well. Take care of yourself and each other, and have a great rest of the week.